Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. It becomes more and more clear to me that Australia is a spectacular place to stargaze. After all, tonight's guest is my third guest from Australia. And if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, stargazing down under will give you a completely different experience. You'll see different constellations and other celestial wonders than you're used to seeing in the Northern Hemisphere. The Aboriginal people there have very different star stories than the ones we're used to hearing. They see the Milky Way differently and they see pictures in the dark dust clouds in it. My guest tonight is Dimitri Dushar. I discovered him on Instagram and was fascinated by his story and the stargazing activities that he offers in the Blue Mountains of Australia. There are many reasons why people travel abroad. and My hope is that when you do, you include some stargazing experiences in that especially if you're going to go all the way to Australia. And I can't think of a better option than hooking up with Blue Mountains Stargazing. Please join me tonight in welcoming to the podcast, Dimitri Dushar. Dimitri, thank you for joining me on the Night Sky Tours podcast all the way from Australia. The pleasure, Vicky. Thank you for having me. So you lead a group that you call Blue Mountain Stargazing in the Blue Mountains in Australia. So let's start by you telling everybody where are the Blue Mountains in Australia? Okay, so the Blue Mountains are about 100 kilometers uh, west of Sydney and uh, it's just a pretty high plateau, a thousand meters in, in height. And I like to believe that this is the place where most people who don't fit in Sydney's mainstream culture go and find refuge. So all the artists and the misfits and the rebels, I feel, go to the mountains to uh, do all the all the good things of life in the wilderness. And uh, that's also where we found our place with uh, my fiance, Caroline. And you have a really cool story about how you got into astronomy and stargazing. So tell us a little bit of your story. How did you get where you are today? So when I was a child, I've been told that I was constantly looking at the sky, which I don't remember, but I can believe it was the case. And when I was eight years old, I told my primary school teacher, I want to be an astrophysicist. Uh, and, and then I was a bit of a prick and I said, do you know what, I did, what that means? And he said, yes, I do know what it means. And <laughs> <laughs> that was a lesson in humility for me there. And then all the way, and then I started learning physics in high school and I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I'm like, wow, astrophysics could really be, well be a path for me. So I kept on doing that. That was all in France, uh, in, in Paris, in Paris suburbs. And in 2011, I had a calling for big spaces and uh, I traveled during my PhD, oh, uh, calling big spaces. So I came to uh, Sydney to start my PhD in astronomy and astrophysics, mostly so on binary stars and planetary nebulae and, um, and in my PhD. And during that time, I had the opportunity to travel to 
lots of awesome places around the world uh, to use big telescopes. So I did go to uh, Arizona in Tucson and Kitt Peak. Uh, yeah. Used the telescope there. I uh, went to uh, Mexico for a conference where I was blown away by the, the Maya uh, pyramids and Chichen Itza and all those places, which is the, where the appeal for archaeoastronomy started to grow really strong. Um, and lots of uh, Chile, lots of good places around the world. So, and then at the end of my PhD, I stopped research for a little while and I was a little bit bitter because I, I had made a contribution to science in a certain way, but I felt disconnected to the magic of stars as I was seeing them when I was a child. And it's only later now, a few years later, I reconnected with astronomy, starting these stargazing tours here in the Blue Mountains and at the same time uh, being hired at Western Sydney University as an adjunct fellow to work in cultural astronomy as its own field. And there I can relate, I was able to relate again to, to the magic and uh, the cultural stuff that is in the stars, which I think as a child, there was a question about what's, what is it, what are stars made of, but also what are the stories that are in the sky? And I think there was this dual mechanism that drove my curiosity at the time. That's the thing that, was so fascinating to me. You know, I'd, I'd heard of Greek mythology, Roman mythology when I was younger, and it just somehow never connected that to the stars, even though <laughs> that's a lot of, of where that ends up is in the stars. Um, and then when I really got into stargazing and I started learning the star stories of different cultures, I was blown away. I love this stuff. So it's so cool that you're you're doing that. And I know that Australia, like the Aboriginal people, boy, they have a really strong star culture. That's right. So there's about 250 acknowledged Aboriginal cultures in Australia, more so 550 uh, off the record, different cultures or language groups uh, for Aboriginal Australian people. And all of them have a different language and a different dream time, so a different um, mythology and a different astronomy as well. Uh, so being in Australia, you have to, if you get curious about one culture in particular, you also kind of have to learn all the surrounding cultures or be more familiar with all the surrounding cultures to, to kind of get a feel of, of what's happening there. Uh, there's a lot of, of sacredness about the stars for Australian Aboriginal people. And in their cultures, stories are the most precious thing you can, uh, you can ever consider. And it's way more precious than, uh, than money or, or even, uh, it, it creates a sense of connection. And that's why it is so, so valued. So it is, it is pretty um, acknowledged that it is for Aboriginal people to share their stories and not so, or not so much for uh, other people, especially because there's been a lot of uh, betrayals as well. Uh, there's been a cultural genocide and a genocide that happened in Australia for the past 200 years and, and more. There is, there is a figure though that is generally acknowledged all across Australia that uh, I'm comfortable talking about because it has been shared very publicly uh, across different Aboriginal cultures and language groups in Australia, and that is the emu in the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, and from, a, from a, an American US point of view, that's interesting because maybe we don't see so much of the Milky Way in the US or not in such a, a vivid way and the patterns are different as well. And so the emu in the sky, and here I'm referring to the knowledge shared by uh, Aboriginal woman, Kirsten Banks, and she gave a TED talk about this that I invite you to consult. Um, but the, the clouds in the Milky Way here, uh, the Milky Way is really vivid here in the, in the South 
And we can see the Milky Way is made of stars and it's also made of gas and dust. Mm -hmm. And the dust is obviously visible when you're in a place with a good sky. And uh, for Aboriginal people in Australia, the shapes of the clouds in the Milky Way create the emu in the sky. So an emu is like a big ostrich, basically. Um, and that's uh, one of the totem animals that is very popular all across Australia. And most cultures, more of the 250, 550 cultures in Australia agree with that figure of the emu in the sky, which is a, a monument in terms of Aboriginal astronomy. So cool. I cannot wait till I get to Australia one of these days. And I need to be there when I can see that. What's the best that's time of year to see that? So that's the Milky Way. So right time, right now, winter is the best time to see it. Um, it's right above your, right above head. If you come in summer, uh, then the Milky Way will be flat on the horizon, and so you'll miss the opportunity to see it. Mm -hmm. um, for Aboriginal people, there's there's a whole uh, calendar based on the position of the Inu in the sky. But uh, yeah, the best time to see it is uh, is typically around now June. Uh, if you come to the right time of year in Sydney, which is in July or so, there is uh, a park called the National Park, called the Kuringai National Park. And if you go there, there is an engraving of an emu on a rock because the Sydney Basin is made of sandstone, it's very easy to carve that rock. And if you come at the right time of year in July, the emu in the sky and the emu on the rock overlap exactly right in this place. And so for Aboriginal people, which is the longest uninterrupted culture in the world with more than 65,000 years of history, uh, there has been and there is a constant connection between the landscape and the sky, which is how Aboriginal people traveled for thousands of years all across Australia following Pascal's songlines, which is a mnemonic about reminding, rem remembering the landscape, a song about the landscape and the stars to drive you from A to B. So tell us a little more about the Blue Mountain Stargazing. What kind of things do you offer? What do you do for people? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we run tours on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we run tours that are 90 minutes long. Uh, we bring our telescope, which is a, an eight inch. It's a, it's a pretty mid-sized telescope, and we get to see whatever is up at the time. So at this time of year, the planets are not visible. Uh, here in Australia, we have to wait until sunrise, which I'm not a sunriser person, so I don't do that. Uh, but uh, between 4 and 6 a.m. now, you can see uh, Venus, uh, in order, Saturn first, then Jupiter, Mars, and Venus appear, and they're all on a straight line just above the rising sun, so that's a really good show. And so we're not seeing that, but we're seeing some of the clusters that are visible. Obviously, the Milky Way on the moonless nights is absolutely stunning. Uh, so we do uh, talk a bit about the Inu in the sky, and uh, a lot of the clusters also, I only discovered that working in the Blue Mountains, um, but the, the, a lot of the star clusters are visible with the naked eye when you're in a place that's got good sky. So we can see right now the constellation uh, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricornus that are rising in the evening. And in, in Scorpio itself, you've got uh, some clusters there. In the Milky Way next to the Southern Cross, you've got some clusters there as well. And the, the Carina Nebula, which is a really bright region in the Milky Way, uh, that's come from the explosion of uh, the Eta Carina uh, star. And, and as you mentioned, the Southern Cross. So the Southern Cross and the constellation Centaurus, which is the uh, quintessential Australian constellation or the Southern, Southern Hemisphere constellation that's always above the horizon here in Sydney. So it's an excellent point for uh, point of reference for navigation. And I've seen on your uh, website, I think it was on your website, that sometimes you partner maybe with wineries or places like that. Tell That's us right. a little bit about that, because that really interests me here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, absolutely. So when we started these tools, we, we started running these tools at a lookout. And then we, real, we realized that there was very little stargazing happening in the whole region, but there was also a lot of amazing businesses all around that we wanted to support and, and partner with. So we're trying to create uh, new sort of experiences. We've got a uh, stargazing and uh, wine tasting uh, tour that we run with one of the local um, uh, vineyards, uh, vineyards that I called uh, Dry Ridge Estate. We've got uh, some restaurants as well. There's a really awesome uh, vegan restaurant that we run a tour at that's called Secret Creek Cafe. And the, the place is just perfect. It feels like you're in the 1800s and you're, you're just going to the saloon. Um, and we run this beautiful tour in the, it's also a wildlife sanctuary. So we had the wallabies and uh, possums and other animals there to, to pay us a visit. Um, what else we've got? We also do um, marriage proposals. So sometimes we've got to to people and we have three of those and it's, it's, they always all said yes so far. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's really moving because, because people don't expect it. Um, and we, we're just here hiding in the background to, to see that things are happening the way we want to. So there's, there's a possibility to add a lot of poetry into an experience with local partners in a way that's very unique and people are very, very looking for these unique experiences. Mm. I, I, if people don't put Australia on their stargazing tour list, I don't know what they're thinking. That's a great idea. What's the best time of year for someone to travel to Australia for stargazing? I know you mentioned if we want to see the emu, then your winter is the best time. Is there any other time that, that you know, if that didn't work out for people, that is a really good time to come? Uh, there's different climates in Australia, so depending on where you go, uh, you may have different uh, best times. Um, so we have a lot of deserts in, in the, the, the red center of Australia. If you stay on the coast, you can come pretty much at any time. Uh, if you come here in the, in the Blue Mountains, if you want to get a mountain feel, you can come in winter. You may even get a bit of snow at times, uh, but most of the time on the coast is about 20, 20 degrees or so, so it's pretty cruisy. Uh, the higher you go, the warmer it is, obviously. If you go to Uluru, uh, also called Ayers Rocks and King, Kings Canyon and all these places in the heart, the red heart of Australia, uh, really strong uh, Aboriginal culture there and strong connection to the land, a very magical and sacred place. Um, the, 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 the summers are hot. The summers are hot. Um, last year, we, oh, not last year, in 2019, we had a lot of bushfires in the region. And so we just... Yeah took a break and went into the outback, which is just the desert with our car. And on the 31st of December, our car broke down and, and at the entrance of the outback in a town called Cobar. And so we had to, to spend the New Year's in a motel and, uh, and it, was, it was wonderful. And ultimately we went to this place called the Mungo National Park, which is a really beautiful place that used to be a lake where Aboriginal people some 45,000 years ago uh, used to live very pleasantly. And that's the first site of human cremation, if I'm not right, has mm. uh, been uh, the oldest, the oldest sites of, of human cremation. So there's lots of history and lots of things to explore, lots of green geos landscapes as well. Uh, just if you go to Uluru and the, the Red Center, don't go there in the heart of summer, because it was 42 degrees when we went there. And I really wanted to go to the lake, but it was pretty, pretty scorching. If people from the Northern Hemisphere travel to Australia, what do you think will surprise them when they do stargazing? So the sky is different, right? The, the first ever travel I made was to New Zealand from Paris. And, and after that, I moved to Australia one year later. And, and when I was in the plane from New Zealand, uh, before, you know, the moment when they woke us up, before we, we landed, I was like, oh, I'll just take a look at the stars. And, 
and I couldn't recognize the stars. And I hadn't even thought about that coming from Europe, that, hey, this guy's going to be different. So um, we see the Milky Way here is really quite a stunner. Uh, the patterns are really different to, to the northern, uh, northern sky. Uh, we don't have a southern star. We have a north star in the northern hemisphere, Polaris. We don't have a southern star here in Australia. So that's a bit of a difference. Um, there is uh, quite a bit of overlap in the constellations. Uh, out of the 88 constellations that are known, 58% uh, of them are straight from the ancient Greece and antiquity. And there's a lot of that that is visible uh, also from Sydney. Anything that's on the equator, uh, most of the star signs, et cetera, et cetera, is still visible. Uh, but all the new constellations uh, that were only added in the 17th and 18th century when explorers started to map the sky in the southern hemisphere, and uh, that have got the name of all the exotic animals or um, navigational instruments and all this sorts of stuff. So, and they all kind of contained within a certain quadrant in the sky. So there's this very exotic patch in the sky that is headed straight towards the south. Uh, and that's really fun to, uh, to explore and have a look through. That's one of the things I think is so interesting about the constellations in the south is that they are named so differently than the ones in the Northern Hemisphere. Like they're just, they're everyday objects or everyday animals. Whereas here in the North, we've got some things where I think a lot of people don't even know where in the world, what is it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We've you know, got these mythical animals like the, the centaur uh, mm -hmm. or the hydra and all these, these creatures from the ancient Greece. Um, so we're, we're sort of acquainted with them, but also we don't really know where they come from and what they mean. Um, in, the, in the Southern Hemisphere, there's a lot of these constellations uh, which describe the surprise of explorers when they first came and they immortalized these animals in the sky. You've got the giraffe, you know, which must have been a, a strange animal. At the time, there is uh, the, uh, the flying fish and the mahi-mahi, which is the Polynesian name for the, what's called the dolphin fish. Uh, hunting after the, the flying fish as well, which must have been also a very surprising scene when they were navigating in the southern seas and, and, and see that for the first time. So all these like quirky little idiosyncrasies about the animal life in the, in, the, in the southern hemisphere has been all mapped in the sky, which is really awesome. I love that. What are some other things people could do in the area of the Blue Mountains if they came? Yeah, so the Blue Mountains, uh, well, first of all, is uh, one of the biggest national parks in Australia, so you won't be short of uh, hikes and things to do. Uh, lots of walks around. There's a lot of the big uh, climbing community. If you're a climber yourself, you can also do canyoning. You can also do up-sealing. There's all your outdoors adventures. There's a growing uh, survival uh, and bushcraft community as well uh, that is teaching you how to survive in the bush. And uh, that's for the adventure side of things. There's also um, some very, uh, lots of cottages and nice little uh, cafes and vintage places to explore. Lots of antiques where you can buy some, uh, some old items from the uh, Australia's 19th or 20th, early 20th century. Um, what else do we have? There's a European, there's a strong European culture in Australia and especially in Lura where I live here. Uh, next to Katoomba, the main city in the Blue Mountains, there is that European feel. So you've got a lot of deciduous trees and you can really tell the progression of the year by the colors of the trees, which uh, after 10 years in Australia, I had forgotten, um, but is actually a nice reminder of the time passing. Otherwise the gum trees just tend to lose their bark, but mm -hmm. uh, they're deciduous trees. So you don't really see that progression. Um, yes, it's very much adventure and cocooning as well. 
lots of good foods. Uh, you've got your wineries as well. There's a brewery with its own, uh, that are, oh, there's two or three breweries that are making their own beer. So it's very much, uh, it's very much a time to explore and then regroup and cocoon. All right, you have completely convinced me to put this place on my list. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really look forward to a long flight like that, but uh, I, it sounds like it'd be so worth it. Well, and it, it does contrast a lot with Sydney, uh, where the atmosphere is as uh, a lot of as uh, a lot of comfort as well. But it's it's very uh, there's a culture of easygoingness in Australia and Sydney in particular that is there. But if you go to the Blue Mountains, it's a lot more hearty. It's a lot more community driven. Uh, and it's got all these little uh, quirky places that you can go to that are, that are really nice. That's awesome. How can people find you online? Yes, we have a website which is called bluemountainstargazing.com. And we also have our Instagram, which is bluemountainstargazing. Uh, all of that, you're welcome to follow us. Uh, if you have got any questions about the Southern Sky, shoot us an email. We're more than happy to answer your questions. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to, we also do uh, quite a bit of corporate tours as well. So we, when lockdown appeared, we uh, decided to reinvent ourselves and we started running online tours. And we actually have quite a few people from the US who join us for corporate events and things like that. Hmm. So uh, we can explore the Southern Sky together online if you'd like, or even the, the Northern Sky as well, is uh, hmm. not an issue. Uh, so that's something that's, that's possible too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing about your amazing corner of the world clear skies to you. Thank you so much, Vicky. It's been great to be here. Do you want to hear more about stargazing in Australia? I have done two other episodes with some fascinating people from the land down under. In episode 26, Tony Coots and I talk about emotional grounding and the night sky. This is one of the most listened to episodes of Night Sky Tourist. She joins me from Sydney to talk about her experiences of emotional healing while spending time under the stars. In episode 34, I chat with Paul Kernow in Adelaide about the Aboriginal skies. He shares some of the night sky culture of the first people who inhabited the Australian continent, and he engages our imaginations with some of those star stories. Check it out at nightskytourist.com slash podcast. It's been a while since we've had Ted Blank on the show, but I had a question that was just rolling around in my head for a few weeks, and I decided I would ask Ted, and I would share it with you. Ted Blank is a NASA Solar System Ambassador and he's the vice president of the International Dark Sky Discovery Center board, and I serve with him on that board. You can get to know more about Ted in the very first episode of Night Sky Tourist podcast. So when you're done with this episode, go back, listen to episode one, and find out what a really cool guy that Ted is. Please welcome Ted back to the podcast. Ted, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. Great to be here. So, Ted, I was sitting around one day and I'm looking at this photo of Earthrise and a lot of people have probably seen it. It's that picture that was taken from the moon and you see the Earth coming above the horizon and it's really beautiful. And I'm looking at this picture and I had this crazy question that popped to my head and I was wondering, would the moon have to be in a certain phase 
for it to be able to capture the earth looking like that or would it matter okay yes that's a great question and it has a lot the answer has a lot of parts uh, first of all let me remind you that the fastest object in the, the lunar uh, <clears throat> sphere at that time was the Apollo 8 capsule and it orbited the moon in just under an hour wow. so so when we say that we saw earth rising above the horizon or that the astronauts saw earth rising above the lunar horizon what they were actually seeing was the change in position of the earth because their spaceship was moving very quickly in orbit around the moon and as it came over the lunar horizon the earth appeared to rise in front of them and luckily they were able to grab that color camera and take that iconic photograph wow. so that part is uh we can put that part to bed it was the motion of the spacecraft that made the earth appear to rise quickly over the horizon and they actually had to rush very quickly to grab the cameras put in the color uh, cassette with color film does anybody remember what film is and uh, take that picture or several pictures so they weren't actually on the surface of the moon when they took it no that was Apollo 8 and Apollo 8 never landed they 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 went into orbit around the moon uh, that was the first time humans ever orbited the moon and of course they did that on Christmas Eve in 1968 and you recall they read uh, from, from some passages from Genesis which seemed appropriate at the time and uh, it was it was very moving so yes they were in orbit around the moon but it wasn't until Apollo 11 that a, a lunar module actually descended and landed on the surface of the moon that's a long trip to take to not get out <laughs> <laughs> well, Apollo 10 had the same trip, but they actually fired their engine and went down to within a few miles of the surface, doing absolutely everything that Apollo 11 would have to do, except land. Oh. So they had the toughest time, and they didn't, a lot of people have asked, well, well, couldn't they have just said, we're landing anyway? Well, they didn't carry enough fuel to do that, so if they had landed, they would have died there, they wouldn't have been able to take off. So that mission was very carefully designed to test every possible uh, set of circumstances so that Apollo 11 could do all the stuff that had been done before, followed by the one thing that had never been done, which was actually land. That's very cool. So I think you have some other uh, tidbits for us, though, about this image or being on the moon at certain phases right well you asked whether the moon had to be at a certain phase for that picture to be taken so the answer to that is partly no and partly yes partly no because regardless of the phase of the moon the spacecraft would have gone around the moon uh, well I think they might have orbited about 10 times so every time they actually saw the earth rise above the horizon it was only on that fourth orbit when somebody actually noticed out the window that the earth was rising and they took that picture uh, so for Apollo 8 uh, it didn't really matter what the phase of the moon was except that the goal of Apollo 8 um, and Apollo 10 was to take photographs of the areas that were designated as possible landing sites when the lighting on those areas was similar to what it would be for Apollo 11. So it was very important. So um, let me start by reminding you that the, Earth, the moon actually spins on its axis like Earth does, but much more slowly. If you stood on the moon and watched the sun rise above the horizon, that would be because the moon would be spinning like Earth does. It would take not six hours for the sun to rise up to the point straight overhead like it does on Earth, but seven days. Hmm. Because the moon rotates on its axis so much more slowly than Earth that it takes almost it takes a week for the moon uh, to spin enough for the sun to rise from at the horizon to straight overhead. 
so that you compare that uh, to uh, six hours on Earth, and you realize just how much more slowly the Earth, the, the Moon, spins on its axis um, than we do. That reminds um, me of the lyrics of, of a song that I heard recently that says it's the kind of morning that lasts all afternoon. <laughs> that's a great phrase, and that's exactly what it's like on the moon every month. So uh, each Apollo mission was actually timed to arrive at the moon when the sun was low in the sky. Uh, somewhere between 5 and 14 degrees above the horizon. There was there were two really important reasons for this. The first one was because that way the terrain, any boulders or hillocks, would cast sharp shadows. And so the, um, the, 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 the astronauts who were flying the spacecraft, in, in, in our case it was Neil Armstrong, um, would be able to see the relief on the surface and avoid any any issues of landing on rocks or giant boulders that might cause the spaceship to tip over upon landing. The other was that because all the uh, lunar missions landed with the sun behind them, they wanted the shadow of the lunar module to actually be cast out into the uh, distance in front of the the pilot so that he could observe where his own shadow was and that would give him a good idea of how far above the surface he actually was. So all of those things required the sun to be at a fairly low angle. If they had landed when the sun was straight overhead the shadow of the spacecraft would have been right below him and not visible and there would have been no shadows anywhere just like is the case in Death Valley at noon and so there wouldn't have been any hope of being able to identify those giant boulders which in fact Neil Armstrong did see the computer was taking him down to a landing spot that was populated with giant boulders and it would have tipped the spacecraft over for sure upon landing so he took control manually and floated himself another mile or so forward until he reached a spot that had a smooth surface and then he was able um, to land. So, so what phase of the moon was that? Okay so the phase of the moon would have been just before first quarter moon so a, a waxing crescent moon. Which is when, my favorite, actually. It's my oh, very favorite to look at. <laughs> yep, same here. And the um, landing spot um, would have been uh, just to the bright side of the line that demarcates light from dark on the moon. That, that We call that the terminator. That's the line of sunrise. If you're standing on the terminator, um, you can look in one direction and actually see the sun just rising above the horizon. And you would be casting a really long shadow behind you. Like if you play golf at sunrise, you notice your, your shadow is very, very long behind you on the fairway. So um, it would have been just, uh, just to the uh, side, just to the bright side of that waxing uh, crescent moon, and the sun, from that perspective, would have risen to somewhere between five and fourteen degrees above the horizon. So um, the, it took three days for the uh, astronauts to actually reach the moon in all of the Apollo missions, and so uh, they calculated what time to arrive for the sun to be about five degrees above the horizon and rising, and they just subtracted three days from that, and that gave them the time they had to launch for the moon to be at uh, waxing crescent phase. So it wasn't important. The, the phase of the moon didn't affect the navigation, it didn't affect the gravitation of the moon or how long it took to go into orbit or anything like that. It simply affected what was the lighting conditions at the landing spot so that they would be as safe as possible for the eventual landing. Yeah, I find myself um, thinking about questions about the moon a lot lately. I don't know what it is. Last night, 
And I know this is going to go on a much future uh, podcast episode, but at the time of this recording today, last night was our strawberry moon here in June. That's right. And it was stunning. It was so enormous and orange when it came up that I was driving and I was like, oh my God, out loud. I was all by myself. (laughs) Yeah, I saw it as well. It was really, really beautiful. Yeah. Well, Ted, thank you for taking the time to entertain my question and give us some really cool uh, thoughts about the moon. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Anytime. I hope that you found that Q&A to be just as fascinating as I did. And if you have a question you'd like to ask Ted too, just email it to me at hello at nightskytourist.com. You can even record your question on your voice memo app and email it to me and we'll get it on a future show. We'll return with our Star Tour segment in the next episode. Meanwhile, be sure to check out the show notes for links mentioned in this episode or visit nightskytourist.com slash 45. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist Podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist Podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.